and welcome to another episode of the Slate Game of Thrones podcast. Today we are going to be discussing Season 8, Episode 1, Winterfell. Uh, joining me is Dan Kois, who is an editor at Slate. Dan, hello. Hey, guys. And uh, June Thomas, who is the senior managing producer of podcast here. Hello, June. Hello, Sam. All right, let's start right off. Uh, it's been almost a year and a half since the last time we saw Game of Thrones, and we returned to Winterfell on the episode title, which HBO kept from us until 10 p.m. last night. So suspenseful so and then so boring as <laughs> just Winterfell. But um, what do we make of this episode? Just Winterfell, the new episode of Game of <laughs> Thrones. <laughs> the things I liked about it were all the things that were sort of callbacks to the premiere, like everyone gathering at Winterfell mm-hmm. and all these people getting together and even like a kid climbing a tree, for God's sake. Uh, there were like all these fun callbacks to that pilot. And also some limb art by the uh, artists of the White Walkers. Right. Uh, we also had that in That's season right. one episode. Scattered on the snow in the premiere and then the, and someone also got pinned to a tree in the pilot, if I recall correctly. So those were all fun, and I liked seeing all the various uh, – the remaining Starks greet each other in various touching or um, or creepy ways in the case of Bran. But wasn't that – I was a bit disappointed by that. I mean, I know that it would be impossible to meet expectations, but after all that time, some of them so long and so many traumas, and then it was like, hey, how you doing? Like – I don't again like we're stuck with the with the emoting capacities of these actors, but I was expecting a, a few more fireworks than what we got. Right. I mean, you're sort of stuck. Um, Willa Paskin in her review for Slate um, kind of ranked and, and wrote down some of the major reunions that I don't even think she kind of mentioned all of them because they're just too many. But she had ten, mm-hmm. and that is a lot. And you can't have ten overwrought emotional reunions in the same you know fifty odd minutes of television because it's just too much. So some of them inevitably get kind of short shrift. Yeah. And it's just like, hey, sup? It depends which one is the one that matters to you. The one that mattered to me was Jon Snow and Arya, and that one I thought paid off very nicely. That was my favorite scene in the episode, I think. Those two meeting um, after Arya had been, as Sansa says, skulking around Winterfell. But seeing those two get together and their hug and him sort of sizing her up, um, her offhandedly dismissing the, the fact that she's one of the most murderous people who's ever lived, and then, you know, comparing swords and then the sort of last warning from her. I really liked that scene. I thought that was a very tight and well-constructed reunion and was my favorite bit. Now, on a grander scheme, the whole episode was a boring table-setting waste of time with like a literal 10-minute <laughs> CGI dragonflight sequence in the middle that is there solely for the purpose of the upcoming like Game of Thrones Universal Studios uh, ride. Mm-hmm. So that was right. bad. Right. I mean, for me, one of the most, you know, exciting things in this, and this speaks, you know, partly to the work that was done, but also to the rest of the episode was the opening credits, you know, which is just you naturally at this point, if you've been watching the the show for seven seasons, you were clued into watching the opening credits to see where we're going to go this episode, if not this, or at least this season. And these opening credits did not go a lot of places. And it seemed very clear that because they have, you know, 90 seconds of theme to fill out or something like that, that they just sort of like, what if we like went down into the basement of Winterfell and King's Landing and just roamed around a little bit? Because actually the episode's only in like maybe three places. Right. It was like a real estate uh, website, you know, where like, let's really focus on the interiors of this building. It's like, I guess it's all right. I mean, it's one of the few buildings standing, I guess. It just, yeah, it felt a little underwhelming, but also... 
you know, we got to sing along, right? We were all singing, and I know you. Oh were yeah, fucking Game hey, of hey, Thrones, Game fucking of Game of Thrones, Game fucking of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I thought we all did. I thought we all did the Peter Dinklage thing at this point. The, Peter Dinklage. The Peter Dinklage. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's some of our listeners may not know this, but if you look online, there is a version of the Game of Thrones theme that is done entirely with just a person singing the words Peter Dinklage and doing all <laughs> the various, and it's really actually amazing but it does make it completely impossible to listen to the theme song without <laughs> singing that for the rest of your days yeah. um so know what you're getting into before you look that up but i recommend it anyway um june did you have a favorite uh, reunion on this uh i think it was aria and the hound because they seem to come with the same energy um you know it's always hard in life or on television if somebody is coming with sarcasm and irony and just kind of holding back emotion and the other is not well matched it's frustrating but they felt like they were both like they were glad to see each other they were kind of paying respect to each other's uh killing ability or survival ability uh but also you know you could see that that was just a well modulated greeting and i did enjoy that Right. I mean, there's not technically a, a reunion, so I'm breaking my own rules here, but I, I, I think, you know, the most, um, I mean, the most consequential, really the only consequential scene in the entire episode is when Sam Tarly tells John about his true parentage. Um, but for me, the best scene in the episode is the one that precedes that, which is the one where Daenerys Targaryen and Samuel Tarly meet for the first time. And she, you know, wants to kind of thank him and say what a great loyal subject she is for curing Sir Jorah's grayscale. But he mentions his last name and, and Danny, uh, not being one to, you know, shy away from her past deeds, has to be like, well, uh, before we go any further, you should just know that I uh, sort of killed your father and your brother. Oh, and, and your brother. Uh, yes, and I'm, uh, I would say I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Because <laughs> um, right. I, I told them all they had to do was bend the knee, and they didn't. And uh, Consequences. Yes, it, it, because it is her nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, is what motivates Sam to finally that and uh, more than Bran saying like Sam, it's time because Bran is such a kind of creepy weirdo at this point right. that um, even though he you know sort of all knowing and when he says it's time to do something, it's probably time to do something. I think Sam is not convinced, or at least he needs a more emotional reason to do that. But the prospect of Daenerys Targaryen ending up on the Iron Throne um, is more than he can stomach. So he that's kind of what leads him to tell John that he is the one true king. And I understand that that was the end of the episode, so we we not to understand that, okay, so that's the extent of John's response. But it was, like, pretty understated, right? Like, oh, okay, wow. Oh, you mean I was sleeping with my aunt? Yeah, oh, exactly. Okay. I still am, apparently, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, whatever. Seem like that's the next the next beat. Like, the the opening beat of the next episode is John waking up and going, oh, oh! <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, I mean, these family trees are difficult to keep straight. Yeah. But he had a little look at the family Bible. And yeah. he's right. like, oh, wait. wait so yeah. I have a question about that scene, um, Sam, that you that you noted as your favorite, the scene between Daenerys and Sam. Uh, I'm correct in reading this as a pretty uh, stark condemnation of Daenerys's supposed, like, skills as a possible future ruler of Westeros, Right. Like the way she handled that conversation, the way she totally botched delivering that news, the fact that it was absolutely news to her that this incredibly important scholar and ally for the throne uh, has has a last name. Like all that suggests that she is like not on the stick, right? Right. I mean, it's this episode as, as a whole and our, our uh, friend and sometime um, guest on this podcast, Isaac Butler, has been talking about this. This episode seems very heavily weighted towards 
leading us to the conclusion that Daenerys is not the right ruler for Westeros in the end. She's clearly a, a kind of a great conqueror, but she has not much of a politician. Um, she comes into Winterfell. She sees the peasants kind of sneering at her. And then she has her dragons do kind of a flyby low over the castle. And she assumes that these idiots are basically going to be scared into following her because she has dragons. Um, she's not reckoned with the stubbornness of these people. And, you know, she is, she seems at this point, it's hard to remember that she is the breaker of chains, that she is someone who had an investment at some point in freedom for its own sake, because all she seems to care about now is obeisance for her own sake. She just wants people to bend the knee. Mm -hmm. And the idea that she's kind of saving humanity is kind of seems like, well, she needs someone to be subject to her. Yeah. And one thing that, that, I agree that 10 minutes of dragon flying was Snoozeville, USA, but <laughs> it also made me think, okay, Danny's always had this thing of, you know, whatever is happening, whoever thinks that they can overcome her and outthink her and outsmart her, she's got dragons. Well, if John can ride the dragons, does that, doesn't that mean that Danny's power is much less impressive? Um, sure, they're still her dragons. She's still their mother, but he's their nephew I guess I mean you know the, just that it does seem to have watered down her power even though he seems very willing to give up his own power he doesn't seem very interested in wielding it yeah I mean it seems uh, it may depend on what you make of the kind of gas face that Drogon gives the two of them right. after after he sees them smooching That's right. uh, people have read that there's a bit of a Kuleshov effect thing going on there people have read that expression in a lot of different ways it seems to me to be kind of angry. And I mean, you know, I have a small dog who acts quite possessive of my wife and will like literally physically situate himself between us when we try to sit next to each other on the couch. So animals are definitely aware of that and can be jealous. Um, and he does not breathe fire. So, mm. so that seems like a potential sticking point. Yeah, but come, I think that all all dragons have like resting dragon face. Like, I think you're reading a lot into whatever his baseline expression is to assume that it's jealousy. Yeah, or maybe he's maybe he's a perv. Maybe he's into it. I don't maybe know. he's an... Maybe I he assume that he was just like... Yeah. He was just like, well, should I eat them? I guess not. <laughs> what do dragons eat? Whatever they want. Right. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, and that's a sort of classic illustration of just how, uh, I guess, you know, tone-deaf word we would use in, mm -hmm. in 2019. She is just not... And I think we, we will probably return to this conversation when we get to uh, discussing who the worst person in Westeros is at the end of the, the podcast. But, I mean, that just shows how unaware of the place that she's coming into and, and pretending to rule um, Daenerys is. Yeah. So meanwhile, at, um, at King's Landing, Cersei is readying her troops, preparing to do nothing. Um, her maester comes to her with the news, I have terrible news. My queen, uh, the, the dead have broken through the wall. And Cersei just says, good. This, I must say, completely confused me because I get her game with the other, you know, pretenders for the Iron Throne. But the dead, man, like she still has to conquer the dead. It's all very well. I guess it's better to be the fourth person facing the dead. Uh, you do face fewer of them, but maybe you don't because don't they just gather strength from everyone they kill? They then joins their army. Like, I don't. I understand that she wants to have fewer living foes to contend with, but she's still going to have the power of the dead. I don't, I really, does she just not understand how powerful they are or does she just really not give a crap because all she can think of is getting on that throne? My sense is that no one has sat down with her and a Google spreadsheet and just like done the numbers <laughs> to explain to her that situation. Yes, because the bare fact of the situation is, 
if you wait and if you're the last person to fight the army of the dead, you're fighting the biggest possible army. So that's a bad choice, with the, especially if you have no elephants. <laughs> oh, the elephants, man. See, I feel a little bad for oh, her. She's, I don't like to disappoint a queen, even Cersei. Can a lady get some elephants in here? She has simple needs. Oh. Right? She does not want sex. She wants elephants. And she gets the opposite of that. Exactly. Yeah. It's very sad. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so that is, is going on. Cersei's big plan is to let her enemies kind of, suppose, I guess, wipe each other out or weaken each other and then rule over what's left. But, yeah, she does seem to be overlooking the fact that every human that the White Walkers kill is not one less chess piece on the table. That is one more person in the White Walker army. And they are actually substantially harder to kill right. than humans. And there's this whole thing that also has me a little bit puzzled with islands. Um, it seems that, so, she, you know, Cersei has the Iron Fleet, courtesy of Euron Greyjoy. You know, so she, I know that she's kind of conscious of the fact that White Walkers can't cross water and humans can, or live, the living can. But, like, again, I don't understand her endgame. I mean, she could go off to some island now, as could anybody who's got the funds to do so. But she doesn't seem like that's kind of a fallback plan, or I don't... I, I'm very confused by Cersei. I don't know if it's, as you seem to be suggesting, that she really hasn't got a plan that's foolproof. But I'm trying to, you know, all these people are saying that Cersei's smart or that Tyrion used to be smart. But Cersei's seeming kind of not smart at all right now, right? Right. I mean, she's got, you know, she's got the Iron Fleet. She's got now the Golden Company, mm-hmm. um, who should have this, the mercenaries who have come over from Essos, sadly without elephants, um, but with some troops. Yes. Um, and that is her plan. But these are, you know, these are not her troops. These yeah. are, you know, in one case an alliance and in one case just a sort of work for hire right. arrangement. Yeah. And um, those are awfully fragile, yeah. you know, and, and Euron, in addition to, I mean, Cersei clearly, clearly seems to think that she can manipulate him to do whatever he do because he is crazy, but maybe also not that smart. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he is volatile and, and unpredictable. That is so. He clearly has ADD that we would uh, diagnose him today. I don't know what the what the situation was back then, but guy cannot focus. Yes, we got to <laughs> we need to get your own gray joy and some Wellbutrin. And yes. yes. Did you guys catch Cersei's little moment of sadness? Well, was it sadness? You're talking about. At the end of the scene with Euron, when he's like, when he delivers the immortal, come on, I'm going to put a prince in your belly. Like, the last shot of her, I feel like she was about to start crying. Like, I saw, like, the glistening of tears in her eyes, and she seemed stricken for just a moment before a quick cut to what, you know, to some horrible act of violence somewhere else. And I was curious about what we were meant to draw from that. Yeah, my first response to that was, oh, she's feeling sad about her dead children. I mean, all her children are dead. But then I think we're we're also supposed to think that um, Jamie has put a prince in her already so that in one way she should be feeling triumphant that she's going to fool someone else into thinking that he's the father of someone else's Mm -hmm. child right i mean that seemed to me yeah i mean i agree there was some she's you know cersei told jamie that she was pregnant last season there was a lot of because naturally you can't trust anything she says there was a lot of discussion about whether or not that was accurate that little touch of her stomach um, seems the way I read that is yes that she is pregnant and that look in her face is that sort of oh like this this shit again like yeah. she's going back to she's going back to when she was married to Robert and pretending that she had three of his children when they were actually Jamie's and she's she's saying that even if she is going to be the queen you know with a man who just happens to be married to her she is still going to have to like 
put on this charade, especially after she has now sent the mercenary to kill her, right. both of her brothers. Right. She's going to be a widow from her brother slash lover and be raising his child with another man thinking he's the father. And what a man. I mean, it was one thing to have to fool Robert Baratheon, who was, you know, we get the sense, a good man who was into whoring and wasn't in love with Cersei. But, you know, not the worst man in the world, but having to, you know, pretend to I don't think she has to pretend to be in love, but have to fool Euron into, oh, these are yours. Like, what a guy to have to to be convincing all the time. Who cares? Like, he's such an asshole. And that, you know that she doesn't want to be making up with Euron. He's a vile, vile man. And he really doesn't seem like good dad material, frankly. No, exactly, exactly. And he's got nothing for her except, I guess, a fleet. Probably smells like squid all the time. Uh, do you guys think Bron will pull the trigger? Is he? Do you? I mean, so Bron gets recruited to kill Tyrion and Jaime. Do you guys think he is going to do that? Are we going to see Bron have a crisis of conscience about what kind of a mercenary he truly is? Right. That's a hard, a hard thing for me to sell. And this may be, you know, I may be, um, you know, sort of a bad fan at this point. But Bron sort of seems like, I mean, yes, he is a mercenary. He kills people for money. This is what he does. We have known this for a long time. But, you know, we like him at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't seem, you know, mad enough at, at Jamie, you know, or desperate enough for money to do this. Um, and it, I mean, it does seem like just in logistical terms, you now have this very, very radically simplified map where there's basically King's Landing and Winterfell and nothing else. And really, because Cersei's army is not marching north to join the rest of the human forces at Winterfell, no interaction between the two. Um, just people at Winterfell thinking or maybe not believing that the Lannister army is coming at some point. So sending Bronn from King's Landing to Winterfell is one of the only kind of it basically just seems like a mechanism to have some sort of interaction mm. between those two poles of the plot. Yeah. But yeah, but I don't buy it in, in character terms. Like we like Perron and exactly. we would not like him if he killed Jamie yeah. or Tyrion. So it does not seem like that's going to happen. Yeah, I'd have, I know it's dangerous to, to think this way in Game of Thrones. But yeah, I agree with you, Sam, that Bronn seems to have a genuine bond with Jamie, even for a mercenary. Nothing against Tyrion. In fact, you know, good relationship with Tyrion. Already been burned by Cersei by her taking back something that she would that she gave him, despite the Lannisters supposedly always paying their debts. So it doesn't make sense, except as you say, as a plot device. Right, and the show is very devoted to undercutting our expectations in many ways, but it doesn't seem interested in undercutting our expectations of like a lovable rogue, who fans have devoted a lot of affection to and then making him do just something super shitty like i can't think of a character like that has assumed that kind of position and who has done that in the history of the show plus we have to think that that murder that he would be reenacting Tyrion's of his father with the crossbow that's a killing that felt righteous to me his father had been awful to him he'd been bigoted against him he'd never loved him he'd never cared for him he never appreciated him he, it was his time to go. That was, especially in Game of Thrones thinking, that was a righteous death. So using that mechanism for undeserved deaths feels, yeah, it, it feels like it goes against the spirit of the thing. This, there's a, there is a kind of morality in Game of Thrones, even for all the, you know, apparently random killings and the, 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 the very easy purchase on life, that just feels like it wouldn't happen. Well, and the show particularly likes its, its sellswords, I think, because this is, you know, this is a, a universe in which 
you know, basically there's a lot of virtue signaling, I guess. The people don't really believe things and believing that other people believe things is what got Ned Stark's head cut off in the first right. season. So the characters who will straight up tell you up front that they will kill anybody for money are really maybe the only honest people in this world and therefore um, admirable in yeah. some strange way. Well, but then what does that do to Bron if he betrays his principles of having no principles for principles? <laughs> <laughs> you capture the hand, sound of my head exploding on this microphone. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. I'm just getting so this all this just makes me sort of hope from a plot standpoint that the, one of the great undercuttings of this season, as the killing of Ned Stark was the great undercutting of the first season, is that Bronn really fucking does kill Tyrion or something like that, that this doesn't end up the way that we all are assuming it ends up like that's the fun of this show for me at this point is the times that it can fool me or surprise me. That's what I want out of it. So that would really surprise me. Right. I mean, this season, I think, desperately needs at least one moment like that because there are so many characters who have acquired kind of plot armor at this point. People that is in, certainly in the last couple of seasons, there are people that clearly have been needed for the end game. Um, and so, you know, basically impervious. And even people like like Tormund, who really seems quite as inessential to the plot, but is clearly somebody people really like, you know, absurdly escapes like being on the wall as it's attacked by a giant ice dragon and somehow still like mine ends up being fine because we like him. And I think he's probably not going to make it all the way till episode six, but he's made it farther than he should have. And I think even, you know, humanity has plot armor at this point. I mean, I don't think anybody, the, the proper ending of the story from a certain way of thinking is that the white walkers win because, you know, this, story has argued all along that humans do not pull together in the face of an external threat. Um, you know, the all these various families of the North who were loyal to Jon Snow now that he's not king anymore, even though his last act as king was to tell them, hey, now go be loyal to this person. They're like, no, you can't give us orders anymore because you're not king. And so therefore, you know, House Glover is going to go look after House Glover. Yeah. Although maybe the, the lesson of House Humber might change House Glover's mind about that. When, when hopes word travels fast at that point. Um, so, yes. So meanwhile, while all this is going on, meanwhile on Euron's ship, um, which I guess is out uh, in, in Slaver's Bay outside. Yes. Or where is it? It must be because he went, oh, he just popped over to to Cersei. So he it must they must be parked there, right? Yeah. Quick, quick rowboat, walk on the beach, climb up the steps, walk through King's Landing right up to the castle. Yeah. Well, he is off to steal his words, fucking the queen. Yeah. Theon makes an appearance and we get yet another uh, reunion. This one almost, this one uh, wordless at first. Whoever's with him, I'm not even sure we know, but they yeah. put a bunch of arrows through a bunch of people on his ship and rescue. Yara. Yeah, which and who greets him with what in Britain we call a Glasgow kiss. I guess in Westeros that would be an Iron Islands kiss. Uh, that would be a, a slam of the of the heads. What do we call, what's that called? Headbutt. Yes. Um, yeah, I love Yara. I was glad to see she's alive. Don't really know how the whole Iron Price thing is going to work out in this particular. I mean, like it feels in a way like maybe they have the greatest chance of surviving just because of the whole water thing which just as I say I know I've said this before but it just doesn't really seem to be getting the attention that maybe it deserves if I if there are houses that are breaking off and just doing their own thing I would recommend that they get on a boat and find an island because that's your best chance for surviving people now can I just clarify can the dead actually not cross water or can they just not swim I mean could they just walk across the bottom of the ocean and it might take several years but eventually they're all going to get there how does this I don't work? know that's a very good question that's another 
head exploding. It's a classic zombie question that many authors of zombie novels have dealt with and wrestled with. The question is not, can they cross the water? Probably they can because they can do anything. The question is, would they know to cross the water? Like, how would necessarily an army of zombies know that everyone was on the Iron Islands if they can't? Like, they're not going to send a raven. They don't have drones to send over to sea. So, like... They've got a dragon. They've got a dragon. So maybe the maybe the the king the what's that fucker's name? The Night King. Thank you. Maybe the Night Night King King. flies the dragon across and sees them on the Iron Islands and and gets all his troops to walk across the ocean bottom, being nibbled by fish who then turn into zombie fish, (laughs) who then zombify the sharks, who then zombify the whales, who sink the Iron Fleet, and so on. This, this is in season 15 of that's right. Thank God it's ending. <laughs> this is like this is like the Game of Thrones version of For Want of a Nail. Exactly, exactly. Hey, can I ask a question about the Night King? So this episode we saw John riding the dragon, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, for some people means, oh, therefore that's proof, proof. We already knew, but proof, proof that he's a Targaryen. But does the fact that the Night King can ride the the you know, the zombie dragon mean that he's a Targaryen too? Are we, are we supposed to think that, or do, or do the rules not apply when you're dead? I hadn't even thought of this issue until I was reading, you know, some you know ten most you know popular fan theories or something uh-huh. this morning. But I hadn't even considered the issue of like who the Night King is mm-hmm. because he's the Night King, right? Um, but but yes, but I mean, I guess there is the possibility if there is you know some other shoe or multiple shoes left to drop in the season. I mean, there is, I guess, the, the possibility. Well, we know that he was, you know, a human turned into this creature by by the children of the forest, but I don't think we know who that person was beforehand, right? right? So, I mean, I guess there is there is the possibility that he is, you know, of, of royal blood somehow as well. The Night King, first of his name. Maybe he's a great option for Westeros. Like, you know, he's obviously a natural leader. It seems to me like there's a lot of equity in his troops. And it doesn't really seem like there's like a like a steep hierarchy. People really can advance quickly within the the army of the dead. He has a really nice design sense. Like that arm pinwheel, I thought was elegant and nicely done. Um, I just think maybe <laughs> he, he, he might have elephants though. He doesn't have elephants, but I just think maybe in the long run, like why not just let the guy have Westeros? I feel like it could be an interesting crucible for democracy that other nations um, around them, like Essos, could look to to see. Well, what happens when a country is just a country of the dead completely? Like how how does that change things? What does it do, you know, for your economy or for animal rights? You know, I disagree with his methods, but I think you can't argue that he gets results. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So along those lines, I mean, where do we think things are going at this point? I mean, we've talked about this episode seems to be kind of stacking the deck against Danny. Um, Jon Snow seems to be the kind of classic person who would be perfect to be a leader if he actually wanted to be a leader, which he clearly, except on the battlefield, does not. He does not want to be a king. He does not want to rule. That is a classic, I'm so tired. I mean, I've been there where you're just like, I'm just so tired, whatever. Yeah. You know, uh, go ahead. It's just classic. Some days you just don't want to be executive producer of Slate Podcasts, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's a highly relatable and (laughs) universal dilemma. Um, Yeah, no, I mean, who, because, I I mean, um, some people are pushing for Sansa at this point. I mean, you know, Gendry technically got royal blood. Yes. Right? There's two things I'm uh, pulling for. One, I'm forcing myself to pull for because I don't really care. And that's Gendry and Arya. Like, they would take us to where we should have been probably at the beginning of all this crap with the House Baratheon and House Stark 
kind of joining, which was something that they that the the king said to Ned right in you know the first episode. But I, you know, they don't seem to have a ton of chemistry. But then again, who does? But mostly, the thing I mostly want to see, and I'm wondering if it will ever happen, is the return of those missing direwolves. Every episode, the only thing I'm really wanting is to see Ghost in Nymeria. And if that does not happen, I'm going to be burning this whole thing down, starting in this studio. So you think Gedry and Arya are kind of like the, the Peggy Peggy Olsen and Stan of this show? That's where exactly. They what put them together in the last episode, and we're supposed to go, oh. All Yes. 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 I do. I would absolutely. Uh, I would love a Westeros just ruled by the direwolves. That would be great. Yes. Just put them in charge. That sweet. At this point, at this point, I'm like, Euron Greyjoy seems to be the only person who's actually enjoying himself. So, like, let him have a turn. All Westeros smells like squid. <laughs> the result of this episode is as I've gone from thinking that not that many people probably could rule Westeros to just thinking that no one could rule Westeros. No one can. Like the only, it's either the army of the dead. Or somehow, like, a, an unbelievable shift to representational democracy. Like, those are the only two endings right. I will accept at this point. Or they split up the Seven Kingdoms. I mean, the fact that they still call them the Seven Kingdoms is sort of, sort of an indication that this whole unification thing is not really uh, taking hold. Are you suggesting Brexit is basically what's <laughs> happening? The North remembers. The King in the North. I'm, I'm getting a lot of, uh, of Brexit vibes from this conversation. <laughs> Grexit? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure how to even make that into a word. Westrexit. Yes. <laughs> All right. So things don't seem to be looking very good for Westeros. Um, but who is the worst person in Westeros? You're the worst shit in the Seven Kingdoms. There's plenty worse than me. June, would you like to go first? You're, yeah. you're sighing. I am sighing because I understand, Sam. I read uh, Rachel in your discussion uh, from Sunday night about who was the worst, per- worst person in Westeros this episode. You, I believe, went with Jon Snow. I did. And I get that you can't, you know, just like in previous seasons, it couldn't just keep being Ramsay Bolton. But come on, it's Cersei. It's Cersei. She's definitely the worst. And she always will be the worst as long as she draws breath. She's selfish. She's manipulative. And she's not even that good at it. And so there's you can't even admire her like, basic brilliant evilness she's just basic evilness and so i just i'm gonna go with cersei without any admiration i like it when i can admire someone's worseness and she's just like basic worseness but she is the worst so it's definitely cersei yeah i have to admit i did make i did put my thumb on the scale for the season i mean i feel like cersei can be the worst one week yeah. And and the, and the the Night King can be the worst one week, and I think we've got worse to expect from yeah. them yeah. Um, later. But I do just to, you know to make a brief version of the case now that I made in print. I mean, I, I think you know John John is terrible. I mean, this episode is full of people. I mean, a few people have have changed. I mean, Arya is, is a different person than she was in the first episode. But bringing things full circle really underlines how little many of these people have changed. And John literally got stabbed to death by assuming that if you told people to do the right thing and that was your whole argument, they would come around to your side. Getting killed and coming back to life did not teach him that that doesn't work. And he's doing the same thing again. You know, the stuff between Sansa and, and Danny. I've some people are really enjoying that. Some people are feel like, oh, look, it's two women in the workplace pitted against each other. You know, you can enjoy that side eye. You can think this is, is a little, you know, kind of overblown or manipulated. But I think the fact is, is that this is John's sister and his girlfriend, his queen, um, perhaps, you know, future bride. 
being brought together into a territory that John has known all his life. And he has not adequately prepared either of these people or or the people whose king he until recently was for this thing going on. He is the one who knows the territory and the fact that Sansa and Danny are at each other's throats, the fact that the houses are not all lined up to to fall into line behind Danny with the army of the dead, you know, the way time and space works in the Game of Thrones universe at this point, I don't know, five minutes away from, from Winterfell. Um, I really put the blame on him. He, yeah. he should have known better. It was very bad office politics. You should never go into a meeting not having prepared people for, to support you. And uh, he completely failed as, a, as just a matter of office politics. Dan? If we're judging people based on their office politics... Fucking Daenerys Targaryen is the worst person in Westeros. Are you kidding? She walks into this meeting where her whole job is to make people think that she, that they can count on her and that she cares about them. And like the one thing she delivers is a wisecrack about how dragons eat everything. And then she abandons everyone to just go flying around for 10 minutes on a dragon and having sex with a dude like by an ice waterfall instead of you know, helping the North get ready for this big fight that's coming up. She's not there, like, manning the stockades or pitching very attractive grayish tents or whatever. She's just, like, flying off hither and yon. I feel like the whole point of this episode for her should have been to make her case to us, the viewers, and to the North, uh, her potential subjects, of her as a real leader, not a you know, a conqueror exclusively, not a fly-by-night slave freer, but a leader, a leader of people uh, and a leader of countries with good judgment. And in fact, all she did was stupid shit. And on top of everything else, she didn't even get any good lines. Like this was like maybe the worst written performance I feel like I've seen in Game of Thrones in a long time. Literally everything she said was like a dragon joke. Like they eat whatever they want. Hold on wherever you can. Uh, well, maybe the dragon will eat you. And she's turned into, at least in this episode, the sort of just like wisecracking empty shell of an uninteresting character. Uh, and it was really amazing to me to watch sort of all my sympathies for her just leech away in the course of one episode, mostly as a result of what I assume was lazy writing, but maybe this was an intentional choice on the producer's part. Maybe their goal for this episode was to have me feel this way about her at the end. Anyway, she's the worst person in Westeros. You know, I think if the season plays out as we're kind of expecting it to, I mean, we know that there is a big battle coming up. Um, It is fairly early in the season, so it seems logical to assume that the humans are going to lose (laughs) that, and then we'll have to figure out what to do afterwards. So I think the show is kind of setting us up for that and showing us all this dissension in the ranks. Um, and there is the fact that there isn't even one person to blame for that. Um, it may may itself be part of the problem. There's nobody you can just um, – you can't just kind of cast out the bad person and have everything be good after that. Well, that about wraps it up for us talking about Game of Thrones, the first episode of Season 8. Uh, thank you, June. Thank you. And Dan? Team Night King. Team Night King. <laughs> These uh, podcasts are a Slate Plus series, so if you are already a Slate Plus member, thank you. Um, if you are listening to this first episode for free, please consider going to slate.com slash Game of Thrones and signing up for Slate Plus, which will get you podcasts for the rest of the season and all sorts of wonderful other games and prizes. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.